Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, where we discuss digital transformation and emerging technologies in healthcare. Here, some of the most innovative thinkers and leaders in healthcare and technology talk about how they are driving change in their organizations. Hello again, and uh, welcome to my podcast. This is Patty. Uh, it is my great privilege and honor to have as my special guest today, Kravitz, CIO of Geisinger Health System, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Patty. I'm happy to participate. For the benefit of our listeners, uh, why don't we start uh, with a little bit of a background on Geisinger? Sure. So Geisinger is an integrated delivery network, which also is in the process of becoming an academic medical center. We do have a medical school, which has been incorporated into our organization about two and a half years ago. But Geisinger consists of 13 hospitals with individual platforms, over 500 clinics, which are part of the system. We're in two states, Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And we also have a health plan, which has approximately 600,000 subscribers in that plan. That makes you somewhat unique. You're now going to be an academic medical center, a health plan, and a health system. And we'll come back to that in a minute. So, as CIO, how would you describe the technology stack at Geisinger? I would equate that to a best-of-breed stack at the moment, but we are taking efforts and initiatives to standardize on singular platforms to be more efficient, more cost-effective, and better information delivery service. We were a very early adopter of EPIC for electronic health record at Geisinger back in 1995. So we were one of the very early adopters. And at that time, EPIC didn't have a lot of the modules that they have today. So we had a best-of-breed clinical environment due to that fact. So separate radiology information systems, separate PAC system, of course, which will still be the same, separate lab information system, and so on and so forth. We have since begun to consolidate those applications within the EPIC stack. And so we are currently on pace to implement a new laboratory system. In the next couple of years, it'll take us about two years for the implementation and build lab and resolute for our billing platforms. And we are doing that across our entire organization. So while I talk about Geisinger in Pennsylvania is primarily EPIC, Geisinger in New Jersey, which is Atlantic Care, is primarily Cerner. So we will implement the same billing solution for both platforms. It's been done before, but it is a little tricky. So we're very cautious in how we approach that before we begin the implementation work there, really doing a detailed design and understanding of all the data flows and then uh, progressing in that environment. In addition to that, we're also implementing a new human capital management or HR payroll solution and also a CRM solution. So we have quite a few projects that are underway, but uh, really excited about the opportunity to really bring our technology stack more in line and consolidate that stack to a platform which is much more integrated and very much holistic platform approach. And of course, I have to ask if between Epic and Cerner, you're gonna maintain both of them exactly the way they are, or do you plan to consolidate into one? I think over time, we will probably make that decision whether we consolidate, but at the present time, we've just implemented the Cerner Ambulatory Platform in New Jersey hospitals. That's going extremely well. And we do have a lot of ETL activity, which goes on. 
So a lot of our work is not necessarily in that transactional system as in the electronic health record. It's more in our analytics engines, and we could talk about that a little bit more as this interview goes on. Now, thank you for the clarification. Of course, all the talk in healthcare and indeed across most sectors is about digital transformation, which means harnessing emerging technologies, harnessing innovation, and so on. From everything that we see, everything, all the research that we do in our firm, healthcare is still in the early stages of a digital transformation. Could you share your thoughts on where and what you see as the current state, specifically health systems? Sure. Yeah, so I, you know, I think we're excited about the opportunity for building our digital strategy, and that's the key because we've had so many touch points where we, we work with our patients, our customers closely. For example, we've built applications that are mobile-based apps for like a patient refund app and a patient scheduling app and a lot of one-off scenarios without really having a full digital transformational strategy and how we want to approach this, how we want to prioritize our work, how we want to reach out to the customer as well as to our providers who are really important in this entire process. So we are just embarking upon this digital journey. I think it's going to be one that will pay us tremendous dividends. Now, getting back to the the healthcare sector as a whole, I think a lot of healthcare integrated delivery networks or healthcare providers, even community-based providers, are probably in the earlier stages for a digital transformation process and strategy. I talked to professionals from from groups like Hims and Chime, and the you know chief digital officer is becoming a transition, you know, for the chief information officer to a chief digital officer, or it could be a hybrid position between chief information officer and chief digital officer. But what's really important is that there is awareness that is the needs of the customer must be met. And we need to make it as easy, as smooth and frictionless for our customers to be able to access our services. And if we don't do that, the competition will certainly do that, and that will take our market. So we want to really be cognizant of it, but we don't want to rush to market. I think you know having a methodical digital strategy where the business is very much involved in the entire evaluation and prioritization of projects and requests will be really important for us. Now, you, you obviously touched upon... Uh the consumer engagement and the patient engagement side of it, which seems to be a very big focus area for the entire healthcare sector. What are some of the maybe one or two other drivers for digital transformation as you see it? Well, I I think in our example that I can use, for us, it would be providing access. We have a lot of well, let me stop for a second and let me explain in our environment, because we have a health plan, we also have a crossover, but not 100% crossover to our health system. So approximately 35 to 40% of our patients that, I should say, subscribers from our health plan actually receive care in our health enterprise. So to us, that's our sweet spot, if you will, where we can you know, make sure we're providing the ultimate care for those subscribers. By doing that, we're keeping the cost down for healthcare costs. And it's an advantage to the rest of our system because it's, you know, there's premium dollars that are collected. And and if their care is managed effectively, we can provide a wonderful service for our subscribers. So one of the use case scenarios that we've talked about early on for our digital strategy 
is patient outward facing appointments and the potential to use, whether it's a bot, a chat bot or a digital assistant, which can assist us in those processes. Because we do have contact centers, and at this point in time, we have about 2,300 employees are tied to the contact center work. Now, that's not only scheduling patient appointments. That is also, we have a large mail-order pharmacy business, so we have a pharmacy contact center, which has pharmacists and uh, pharmacy technicians that are actually the people on the contact center addressing calls from customers. We have a nurse triage contact center. We have care management contact centers. So we have a lot of different types of contact centers. But we feel that an area where there is a lot of attrition, a lot of turnover because they're not, you know, they're not high-end positions, but they're not real low-end positions either. But people will have an attrition factor where there are other jobs within the system become available and people transition to those jobs or jobs outside of the system. So for us, because it's a, a big turnover area and because it's so critical to our business to be able to fill those appointments, especially for Medicare patients, care Medicare patients, medical assistance patients, or even our primary care and specialty appointments. So we'd like to leverage that as one of our first points for our digital strategy to really focus on, on fulfilling that need of outward facing, working with our customers. It's very, very interesting. So clearly that's an area of synergy between the health plan and the health system. The fact that, you know, a third of your members also happen to take health care from the system. Can you talk about maybe a couple of other major synergies? For instance, is there a common IT function, for instance? Do you have a common analytic function, for instance? Could you talk a little bit, a little bit more about yeah. synergy? Yes, actually, we're we're doing more synergistic approaches and centralizing as many of our support services as possible. So IT is one particular area where we do centralized project management across the enterprise, regardless if the work is done in the health plan or the health system, or regardless of which platform in the health system. I mentioned earlier, there are 13 different hospital platforms that we support as part of Geisinger and a number of initiatives. So we centralized our, our project management office, and that reports directly to the CIO, to myself. We also have centralized a lot of our services with development, too, so we can take advantage of you know, agile development techniques and as well uh, using specific tool sets, which are standardized across the enterprise. And another area, uh, which is analytics, has been a focal point to consolidate the resources with our big data platforms and bring those resources together to be able to really focus and attack large projects and have great success with those. So those are some examples, Patty, of, of areas where we've centralized services and, and you know, got some economies of scale from that. But we'll continue to work to improve those economies of scale even further. I want to kind of dig into that the last comment a little bit more. Traditionally, you know, we, we know that the, the interactions between the health plans with whom they work, you know, which are not owned by the same entity, have not been as, as let's say, as collaborative as we would like in areas like data sharing, for instance, you know, if you look at uh, the, the marketplace in general. So clearly you have an advantage because you are able to share data. Now, have you seen that translate into tangible improvements in, let's say, population health management? Have you been able to see that and uh, quantify it? Yes, so we have. 
And I just want to be clear, there are certain data elements that we cannot share between the health enterprise, the clinical enterprise and the health plan and, and the health plan and the clinical enterprise because they have other, for, as an example, in our health plan, there are about 125,000 providers that are part of that health plan. And a limited segment of those, maybe about 3,500 are, are from the clinical enterprise advising or so. There are contracts and other uh, relationships that are established that have to be kept separate and distinct by regulatory requirements. And the same thing happens with different plans and, and information as far as other contracted services from other insurers that we have on the clinical enterprise side. So putting that on the side, just want to put that out so everybody knows we're <laughs> above board and doing things properly and, and following regulation. We do have a lot of synergies. And where we're seeing a lot of those synergies is because, you know, we have, whether it's a commercial insurance, which is a small piece, about 200,000 of our 600,000 members are under our commercial insurance plan. The rest are government-sponsored managed care plans. So whether it's medical assistance, I should say Medicaid or Medicare, we manage those patients effectively through our health plan, through the Geyser Health Plan. So where there's value that's seen, though, is that we can actually use a lot of our technology to manage those patients effectively. We have developed a lot of unique programs like Geisinger at Home, where a physician, a pharmacist, a nurse, a care manager will all travel to the patient's homes for severe, chronically disadvantaged or chronically ill patients. And these patients typically have three or more comorbidities. So they may be a diabetic patient with hypertension, coronary artery disease, and it could have COPD. So those patients uh, really need a lot of care. And as we manage the care of those patients effectively, and we do have uh, some telehealth services, patient monitoring in the patient's homes, uh, which can alert us back to the, through the clinical enterprise and really go back to our care team. So we've leveraged a lot of technology. We do a lot of predictive analytics on the patient population, and it really identifies the sickest of the sick patients that we should be focused on to care for effectively. So there is a lot of synergy. You know, the, the care management of those patients, really critically important. The data, really critically important so we can track how well the patients are responding or what other interventional services we may need to provide for those patients. Fascinating. Let's come back to digital transformation and uh, emerging technologies, Sean. So, I like to do something which I call a lightning round, if you will. I'll kind of talk about, you know, four or five emerging technologies, and then you can maybe share your top of mind thoughts on the maturity level of those technologies. Then we can dig into how you're leveraging any or or all of them at Geisinger. Okay. So, okay, let's go with the first one uh, here, cloud. So we are starting to use a lot of cloud services at Geisinger. All of our new applications, with the exception of our Epic, because we do host Epic on-premise, we have not moved to the Epic cloud yet, and we may or we may not, depending upon the cost to do it and if it makes sense as far as a total cost of ownership perspective. But a lot of our newer applications, I did mention human capital management, HR payroll, which is a workday solution, definitively a cloud solution. So we're leveraging that. Our CRM is Salesforce. That will fit, uh, definitely be a cloud solution as well, just on the early stage implementation for that. But there are a lot of these initiatives moving forward. We use ServiceNow as our IT service management platform, definitely a cloud solution. 
that's worked well. We've deployed more and more cloud, but as you do that, there are certain controls that need to be thought about for cybersecurity and HIPAA data loss prevention. So we've been working before we get full blown on the cloud and even Office 365 through Microsoft to migrate all of our Exchange and OneDrive and SharePoint locations and teams to the cloud will be really important, but we want to have data loss prevention in place. So certain things like a CASB is extremely important for that. So you can tie that information back to your security profile platform and surveillance. And there are other initiatives and things you need to think about when you migrate to the cloud. Will you have enough bandwidth? Do you have enough separate ISPs that are disparate that can provide the service in the event you lose one ISP and you don't lose connectivity to cloud solutions? And in some cases, even the consideration of having some data resident in a local data center in the event you do go offline off the cloud and say the worst case scenario, all the ISPs are down, the internet's down, period, at the main pop. What happens? You know, how do you not disrupt your business and drop the downtime procedures if at all possible. So those are some of the considerations I think that we built into ours. We want to have five nines availability or better. And so we are taking a methodical approach to the cloud. I know a lot of magazines you read or articles you hear or other podcasts say, oh, you got to get out of the data center business. But you know, you'll never truly get out of that data center business, migrate everything to the cloud because you still use it as your your main distribution frame, tying everything together. So you still need a location for that. You may still have some straggler applications that just don't fit into the cloud appropriately. So that is part of our strategy though, Patty. And I think I think it's a solid, but it's methodical on how we're approaching it. So you will remain a hybrid cloud environment, which which is kind of what I hear from most health systems. And yes. I, you know, I'm also trying to get a sense of where you draw the line, let's say, do you think more and more of the emerging tech solutions or you know emerging solutions themselves, whether it's from startups or from other companies, do you think more and more of that is likely to be in the cloud, whereas your core record, like you know your electronic health record system, they're more likely to be on-prem? Is that kind of a broad line that you would draw between a cloud-based operation and an on-prem operation? Well, you know, the way I look at it, and I'm sure other CIOs have a different perspective, but if you look at simplistic approach to it, you have, if you are a cloud-based vendor that has their own private cloud or using, you know, AWS or Azure or Google Cloud or whatever, or Rackspace or, or one of those, you know, you have one place where you need to maintain your code and make sure that code is current. It's almost like the old RCO approach from the past where, you know, things were hosted like the old SMS from way back when. It seems to keep things more structured and in place, but it also would have a tendency to to move the your upgrade paths and other things in a closer alignment, not necessarily being that free, open, and flexible as you have with your on-prem solutions. Now, a lot of the EHR vendors are migrating to the cloud because Quite frankly, a data center is an expense, and it is expensive to find the people to support it. And sometimes that attrition of those people make it challenging. So I think, you know, the big electronic health record vendors, Cerner has been probably 95 plus percent of their clients are hosted in the Cerner cloud, but they also have the ability to host other applications in that cloud, not just the electronic health record. 
Epic is primarily new to the cloud, but they are starting to move there. And a number of their customers and some big customers have migrated to the cloud with some great success. But they're working on, at least the best that I understand it, is working on their strategy for the other applications to host those. And I'm not sure, I have not spoken to Epic directly about this recently. They may have made some great progress, but Athena Health is primarily a cloud-based EHR vendor. So I think we're seeing much more migration to the cloud. I think that's going to be a direction we'll see this continue to go. Artificial intelligence. What are your thoughts on the current state of AI and anything that you're doing that you could share with us? Guys, sure. I think the state of AI is interesting. I think it's going in a lot of directions. But, you know, if anyone's attended the HIMSS conference uh, that just took place at the end of February, beginning of March, you hear vendors everywhere on the floor saying they're using AI and ML. Whether they're using it or not, whether they understand it or not, I think it's, it's a very vast array that can be considered part of artificial intelligence machine learning. And so, you know, the way that I traditionally looked at this is machine learning, you're learning from historical transactions that you have and trying to assimilate that information so that it makes sense. Artificial intelligence, you know, from my perspective, is more like, yes, I'm, I'm looking at this and I can infer what may happen next, or I can anticipate what will happen and have the machine perform the next steps in that process. And then predictive analytics is saying, my probability could be 60, 70, 80% that I'm right on this, and I can predict what these scenarios are from looking at historical data, again, machine learning and artificial intelligence. But it's an area that we dabble in a lot at Geisinger. We've been known for innovations probably 15 plus years, working with innovations and especially analytics. So, you know, we have a number of different areas that we are working in now, and working with AI, ML, and predictive analytics. And I can give you a couple of use case scenarios that we're doing, but what we do is we won't just do this research and and publish something in JAMA or Harvard Business Review or somewhere else. We typically will incorporate that into the workflow in our clinical enterprise. So I think that's what is important because we can develop these models, but really show an improvement in the patient's care that's being provided. So I think that's important. And so we have a couple of initiatives underway right now. One is on cardiology. We can, you know, literally looking at at the historical data for our patients, we can predict whether a patient will have a stroke in the next 12 months. And it's a, a very high probability. It's 90 plus percent probability from what we've experienced. So that's helped a lot with cardiology and neurology patients. And so that's one of the initiatives that we've had, and we can, uh, we can, and we do alert our providers when we see these these trends that are happening with the patient based upon clinical factors that come back from uh, whether it's you know laboratory results or documentation in a note where we use natural language processing to pull that information out of a note and assimilate that data into a data warehouse. That kind of information is really valuable. And, and right. the second one is really, it's around doing overreads of radiology images using right. a product called TensorFlow to determine if there are any types of nodules or early growths that may be occurring that aren't necessarily picked up by the human eye yet. It's too early. I hear that uh, the most progress uh, that has been made in uh, applying artificial intelligence to 
predict outcomes or predict uh, disease progression or predict the way has been in uh, use cases involving images that this you know a lot of the published literature seems to refer to uh, images that seems to be kind of the uh, hot spot if you will for success yes. yeah do you get the same sense that's, yes in working with our clinicians and we have data scientists that work that span between our research division we have two research divisions i did not mention that initially when i opened up as far as about geisinger but in working with our data scientists which are they are MDs slash PhDs. So these people are super trained. They know all the analytic tools. We use R and Python and, and some of the other languages for this. But they know all the regression techniques, all the comparative analysis on that data. They really go to town in this data. And we have a very rich data environment because we've had an electronic health record for 22, 23 years now. And a lot of our patients are, so to speak, cradle to grave. So we have a lot of information to learn from. Now, that's yeah. in our corporate environment, but at our other campus locations, we have a lot of transient patients. So we learn a lot from that as well. There's a lot of emerging data sources that uh, now are available. And, you know, these data sources are growing. The data types are also growing. Can you talk a little bit about how you're integrating, let's say, genomics data or lifestyle data into, let's say, your population health management programs? And what are some of the typical challenges you face when you do that? Yeah, so what we've done, we've uh, genetically sequenced well over 100,000 patients right now. And I think the number is probably 125 to 150,000 patients. That data is not integrated. The genome sequence, the exome sequence is not, the variants are not embedded into our electronic health record yet. We kept those in a separate database, but we can tie that back to the information in our electronic health record for our patients. We are looking at the genetics module from Epic Corporation and plan to implement that in order to capture some of that information. But it's ironic. I just did a conference on Friday at the NIH in, uh, in D.C., and one of the things that it, it was a predictive analytics conference. And a lot of the researchers, health systems that participate, all feel that genomics is, is a piece of the puzzle, but not a large piece of the puzzle. Bigger components are your zip code, the characteristics of where you live, your lifestyle of the people where they live, their eating habits, you know, things of that nature, exercise routines, all that stuff plays into your health, even to a, a larger extent. Now, genetics and genomics can unlock doors for opportunities that you may not have seen in the diagnosis process. So there is definitely a value there, but we do not have those two joined together in our workflow yet. The genomics data that you're keeping as a separate uh, database, is that mostly for regulatory reasons or is that? Uh, no, it's just that we don't have a space, uh, a location that we can really closely tie that together into our patient database yet. Okay. And I'm assuming that these are all, you know, permissioned, uh, you know, with a patient call. Oh, yes. Yes. Every patient that has been genetically sequenced had to consent and, you know, officially sign a consent to do that. Okay. So back to our lightning round. Let's talk quickly about, you know, blockchain and 5G. They've been making a lot of waves. Blockchain has kind of dropped off the radar a little bit. Uh, there was yeah. a lot of talk about it last year, not so much this year. This year, you know, there's more talk about 5G for a variety of reasons. Do you want to cover both, uh, and what do you yeah. think related? But no. you know, maybe yeah. we just take them together. 
Well, let me keep, keep it a little bit separate because blockchain is an area that we've done a lot of research on and we're looking for the appropriate use case scenarios for blockchain because the ability of blockchain is, in theory, it's supposed to have a higher level of security. It's harder to break the chain, although you do read scenarios, use case scenarios internationally where the chain has been broken. Also, the value of it is the audit trail capabilities to be able to pull back every transaction that ever touched a patient or a financial transaction that may have occurred or whatever else. So we're looking at our supply chain and we're looking at blockchain as a potential way of, of supporting that and enhancing the supply chain experience. So let me give you an example, an implantable device. An implantable device could be a pacemaker, could be anything. I mean, there are a lot of different, it could be a new hip, a new knee or whatever. And so say there were a recall on that, and if you had a blockchain with, with the supply chain components from, you know, tying back to a patient from a lot of different data sources, it would give you the ability to be able to just punch in a serial number and scan through the blockchain to be able to find that information. At least that's the use case that's been explained to me by our team of engineers that want to work on this project. So have we done a lot with blockchain? No, we have not, as a lot of places have seen the cool, as you have stated. But there is a, a strong potential that we may be using it for our supply chain initiatives, or at least dabble in it to see if it's really effective, and then look at it for other opportunities, Patty, a little further down the road. We hear that, uh, you know, from, from some of the research that we do, the provenance, establishing the provenance of, uh, of an item uh, like an SKU is so it seems to be one of the high value use cases and the pharma companies are using it because they have a global supply chain which i'm sure the medical device companies also have so establishing yep. the problem you know it helps you identify the point at which something may have gone wrong and so that's right to be so great what about 5g networks so 5g we're very much in a rural environment and i've talked to a couple of the major carriers specifically through my relationship with Chime, being a board member of Chime, and, you know, interacting with a number of different vendor opportunities. And so there seems to be an interest by a couple of the major cell phone carriers to begin to deploy 5G in a rural setting. Now, I think there's flavors and levels of 5G that are available. I think a lot of it is enhanced 4G at this point in time, although I'm no expert on 5G. I have some colleagues that are experts, and I, I typically defer to them for deeper knowledge in those areas. It is an area that we are interested in. I think it can uh, drive down latency, can improve bandwidth and speed. A lot of opportunities, especially as we do more telehealth services in the home setting. To me, that's exciting because it gives the opportunity for full motion video without latency specifically into the home setting when you are monitoring patients through telehealth, even off an iPad or you know, a mobile device in the home setting. So I think there's a lot of up uh, shot with 5G, but it's early and, and my knowledge is not as deep in that area. And from what, what I hear you say, the early use cases that are emerging seem to be around uh, rural health and telehealth. Did I hear you? Yeah. That's, those are the areas we are looking for, Patty, to really uh, leverage this. But, you know, a lot of our apps are, are moving to mobile as part of our digital strategy. So I think, you know, 5G would enable that even at a faster pace. Okay, one more on, on that voice enablement. I mean, there's a lot of excitement around 
voice enabling, you know, Amazon, the Alexa service just announced a couple of weeks ago, a range of services that are enabled and HIPAA compliant. And so what, what do you make of all that? Well, I, I think it's a great opportunity now that it's it's been known and published that it's HIPAA compliant. That was our concern to really go full bore on this. Other health systems have have gone out on the edge and are absolutely ahead of us. I know Atrium is one that I read about, and I hear great things about the work that they've done with with Alexa and uh, and other you know voice enabled tools. And I think you know as we get deeper into this process, we're a little behind in that area because we're concerned about HIPAA and protecting the, the privacy of our patients. But um, you know I think it's one of those areas where in our hospital setting, you know, we want to have the ability and hopefully take some of the stress off our nurses where a patient can speak to an Alexa or a Google Home type device, voice enabled device, and be able to interact with that and, and hopefully be able to be a, a customer satisfier, get the, the information initiated quicker, and then be more targeted for our, our nurses and nursing assistants to be able to serve that customer population more effectively. Hopefully, some lean techniques can be brought into place for this. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about innovation at Geisinger. And innovation, again, is one of those words that's thrown out a lot in the market. There seems to be a, a lot of innovation that's happening just through day-to-day you know, work in healthcare enterprises, but there's also an innovation ecosystem that's kind of developing you know, all the digital health startups. And even within health system specialized innovation arms. I think Geisinger has its own innovation group. So how do you integrate the innovations into clinical care and what are the success factors and what what are some of the challenges you've seen? So innovation to us is really important. It's we don't innovate just to publish or research just to publish. We want to innovate so we can make a difference in the care and in the lives of our patients. So We've done a lot of stuff over the years, and we have some things called like proven care, where we've identified ways to treat a patient more effectively for a particular condition. And if they came in for like cabbage, coronary artery bypass graft, you know, we had a specific set of order sets that we built where we administered antibiotics before the patient ever went under for surgery, uh, getting ahead of it, uh, ahead of infections, things like that. And these protocols have worked successfully. We've done another thing called Proven Health Navigator, where we actually navigate through a care management process with our patients through the care delivery system, through a care managed type approach. You know, we alert when a patient's under that care management protocol, if they've visited an emergency department because their medications are in need of being adjusted. And as soon as they they register at the emergency department, it flags out and, and notifies their primary care doc as well as their care manager simultaneously. And in most cases can avoid the ED admission for that patient or ED registration process and get their meds corrected and, and they can get back in the home setting more effectively. And they're happy not to spend four hours or six hours in the emergency department. We have something called proven recovery where we know by building a patient up before surgery, that we need to have a patient stronger. It's always been stated that you don't eat anything before a surgical procedure because you can have a, a poor uh, reaction to your you know, anesthesia. 
But that's right. been proven not to be the case. And small amounts of food, you build up the strength of the person, they recover faster from surgery. There's a number of those initiatives, but those all came out of innovation and evaluating new ways of doing things and learning from others. We learn a lot from Europe, Europe or the Middle East or even the, the Far East on their techniques. And we try to leverage those for the work that we do. Interesting. Well, John, we're coming up pretty much to the end of our time here, and I just have a couple of last questions. What is your advice for technology firms, big and small, who want to be a part of the Geisinger journey? So I do get quite a few inquiries from a number of different companies. I think the most important thing is to understand, I, I obviously don't have time to stop and answer every one, but it would be beneficial if they researched before they hit me on a sales call. Because I think the benefit for these companies could be understand the direction that we are going as an organization, how they may be able to support the work and the initiatives that we have underway. My last question for you, John. What occupies your mind the most in a typical work week as CIO of Geisinger? Well, we do have a lot of work transpiring. And, and as I mentioned earlier, Patty, in this process, we're doing six enterprise applications which are underway simultaneously. They won't all go live at the same time, but a number of different diverse initiatives from joint ventures with other health systems where we're going to outsource all their work to our systems and then you know support them going forward to this whole host of enterprise applications that we're implementing at this time. So there is a lot of that going on. Cybersecurity, as every other CIO, it's in the forefront of your mind. You're thinking about that all the time. You're always looking to improve your cybersecurity stance, surveillance, all of those initiatives as part of cyber. It's really, really important to stay ahead of it as much as possible and to have people thinking in terms of what they do can impact cybersecurity. So I would say cyber is, is a big factor. Looking at ways that I can you know, establish our IT infrastructure, our application support teams at a lower cost, providing a higher quality service. We've studied IT service management. All of my entire team of about 900 people have become ITSM certified. Once that, we had them lean certified as well because we want to continue to look at new, fresh approaches to how we do our work. How can we turn things around faster to meet the business needs of the organization and to do it in a very cost-effective manner. I think that healthcare is changing dramatically as other industries have gone through this transformation. The difference is healthcare is very complex and there's a number of different outcomes that can happen. So to say that you're going to just outsource the whole thing may work or it may not work. And you've got to be very careful and involve providers you know, throughout this process to make sure that you're in alignment with meeting the needs of the providers to meet the needs of the patient. And in my mind, that's the most important thing. That's so well said, John. Thank you so much for taking aside the time from your busy day to talk to me and for being a guest on the podcast. I really appreciate your time and I look forward to staying in touch with you. Thank you, Patty. It was a pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, John. Take care. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Subscribe to our podcast series at www.thebigunlock.com and write to us at info at thebigunlock.com.